Hey everyone, this is Ali and Colin Gare from Outlaw Bows. Hey guys, how's everybody going? We've decided to start a podcast. This is our first podcast. Um, Colin is a pretty quiet and reserved guy, so I thought I would join him in co-hosting. Like a big teddy bear. Sure. <laughs> so, Colin, tell us a little bit about yourself. Like, what do you, Who are you and what do you do? Uh, I'm the... I guess head bow maker of Outlaw Bows. Uh, I make. You say the only bow maker of. Outlaw yes, Bows? I'm the only bow maker of Outlaw Bows. Um, I've been at it for about ten years, eleven years. Uh, I started when I was in my early twenties, and I've just been at it, just slowly adding to my skill set since. Um, I had an overall goal of getting into modern glass bows, and I've achieved that goal this year. When I met you, you said that you're never going to make them. You're like, that's way too far out of my reach. I'll never make glass bows. Yeah, it was always a goal, but at the time I didn't think it was something I could attain. Um, but my skill set's in, in, in sort of improved pretty drastically, and uh, I've managed to acquire all the machinery that I need for it. So I'm um, trying to make a good go of it. So what is Outlaw Bows? Uh, it is Australian, I try and use the majority of Australian timbers where possible, uh, custom handmade bows and arrows. Okay, where do you, where do you sell them to? Like, who do you sell them to? Uh, I have bows all over the world now. Uh, I'm in a few different countries. Most of what I sell is to guys doing reenactment in the reenactment scene in Australia and also uh, I'm with being bridging into modern fiberglass stuff I'm getting into the hunting scene a bit more now um, all of my fiberglass designs are tailored around hunting as their main purpose you can use them as um, target bows if you so wish but they are designed first and foremost as hunting bows for those of us that aren't reenactors what does that mean what's a reenactor and why are you selling to a reenactor <coughs> um my reenactment bows are uh, copies of or inspirations from uh, medieval and prehistory artifacts. And a lot of the guys that do reenactment, it could be medieval, it could be Viking era, it could be uh, prehistory. Um, they'll come and ask if they can get a particular bow based off a find that they want to have made. And I'll do my very best to make something in that same style or if I can copies down to the measurement um, of the original so that's what I do um, I do a lot of that sort of stuff how did you get into making bows you say you started in your early 20s um, I've been an archer since I was three um, and dad... now you have a three-year-old archer <laughs> that's right <laughs> no dad got us into shooting when we were very little he, he used to shoot when he was in his 20s and um, we sort of watched him shoot and we were always around it so we wanted to do what dad was doing and once I started shooting that was pretty much it it was like a lifestyle choice yeah. um, it's just something I love doing it's it's peaceful to me okay. um, and then uh, when I was younger I, I guess I probably started in arrows first what do you mean uh, we always used to sit on the back veranda and help dad make arrows for his bows uh, we used to love sitting and gluing the feathers on and putting the knocks and the heads on. So I, I guess I started in making arrows before I made bows, but it was kind of a natural progression to go into making bows properly. And I kind of just started out um, self-taught 
<clears throat> the first six didn't go so well, but the seventh one worked out nicely. Uh, and then when I was at uni, I started in my engineering degree and I got an interest in uh, bending things. So my engineering was a lot of structural engineering stuff and I found a lot of similarities between bending beams in uh, concrete and steel and what happens in bow limbs. So from that point, the, the degree that I finished very much helped me uh, sort of see what's going on in the limb a lot more than what a lot of people can and I think that's a benefit. <clears throat> Does it matter what timber you use for a bow or an arrow? When I make a bow, when I get an order for a bow, I'll go through uh, basically there's certain timbers that I look for that are very tension strong and other timbers that, are, that I look for that are compression strong and when I make a bow it's about matching those capabilities so the back of the bow gets stretched in tension and the belly of the bow gets compressed gets crushed and being able to resist those forces is key to making efficient springs so I try and tailor what timbers I pick uh, to the draw weight that the person wants and go from there so it's all very specific to the customer yeah everything I do is very much custom made if a person comes to me and gets a bow made I tend to specify that they try not to let other people use it because it is very much made to them mm -hmm. for them everyone knows like about the u-bow everyone wants a u-bow can you just touch on why everyone wants a u-bow like what is so important about the u-bow why people <coughs> pay such a pretty penny for it you would is basically a naturally occurring perfect spring the heartwood and sapwood in the yew tree complement each other absolutely perfectly in terms of their elasticity. So because of that, you get very, very light mass weight, but extremely strong uh, elastic properties, which gives really, really good cast in a bow. Um, and what I mean by cast is the speed that the limb returns once it's bent. So the yew tree, you know, it's quite rare now. To find good quality straight U, um, it's nearly impossible to find over here. So a lot of what I use is U that's been ordered from Canada or uh, British Columbia. We can't just go plant some of the pro in-laws' property and wait for it to grow. <laughs> I wish we'd be waiting a very long time. Why? Why can't we? <coughs> U tends to grow in a colder climate, so up here in Queensland, it's not really ideal, and it's very slow-growing timber. Um, you know, the highest quality you would might have 80 growth rings and an inch of thickness, um, 80 to 100 rings and an inch of thickness. So it's very, very slow to grow. 80 to 100 years? Yeah. What would someone be looking to pay just for the stave? Um, depending on when I, when and where I get the stave from, you could be looking at anywhere between 450 and $600 Australian to get a U stave. Um, purchase price and then to ship it over here. Sorry about that guys, we have a neighbour that likes to sit out the front with his Commodore rapping for like 10 minutes at a time. He must have heard Colin because Colin was like, is he going to go anywhere? And then he drove off. So we're back to it. Um, just to bounce back, we're talking both the, the U-bow mm -hmm. and then we're talking about reenactors. 
That's right. Why would someone want a Ubo for reenacting? And also because this weekend we were meant to be at the Abbey. That's right. We were going to we be were. doing this podcast. We were going to be sitting <coughs> here going, this is the Abbey. This is what the Abbey is. And this is what we're preparing for the Abbey. Mm. And now we're sitting here in a COVID lockdown. We've just had our COVID test done this morning. Joy. Abbey's cancelled. Like, right. can you talk about what, why someone would want a Ubo for reenacting and what the Abbey Medieval <coughs> Festival is? So... A lot of the archaeological finds throughout history from a lot of different places over the Europe, um, so Viking period, into medieval stuff, through to Renaissance, we see a lot of examples in the archaeological record of you being used as bows. Um, there's a few bows dated eight nine hundreds, then into uh, the artistry that we see through the medieval period and then into the Tudor period with Mary Rose bows uh, and then onwards in through the Victorian era. Um, all of these time periods, you was used nearly exclusively as bow timbers. Do you think it was quite a plentiful tree at that time? I think at that time it definitely was and they worked out very quickly that it was easy to make a bow out of. Um, you wood is very simple wood to make a bow from yeah um because it is so strong uh and so flexible it's it's very simple and then again with the tooling that was available at the time even in the stone age <coughs> uh and early iron you know copper age bronze age and the iron age it's very easy to work with with very minimal tooling so it's quite quite simple to craft a bow from a usury how long between cutting the yew tree and making a bow? A lot of people, and myself included, like to anywhere from two to five years. Um, two to five years is a good seasoning time, depending on the humidity, where where the timber's being seasoned, um, and also the, the thickness of the log. But basically, we just want to get down around 12% moisture content for yew wood. After that, once it's get once it gets to that point, then it's ready to be split and then crafted. So, because it was used so much in those time periods, that's why using it for reenactors is so popular. And being the Abbey Medieval Festival, it was such a popular bow. That's right. What is the Abbey Medieval Festival that we were so excited for? <coughs> the Abbey Festival has been running for twenty five years. It was supposed to be, or this would have been its twenty seventh year. Uh, 2019 was the 25th anniversary of the Abbey Medieval Festival and it's basically a festival where reenactors from all over Queensland and internationally as well now. We have jousters come over from Europe and also the States. It's the biggest medieval festival in the Southern Hemisphere. It is. It's the biggest medieval festival. So we draw big crowds and we get to show off time periods that a lot of places sort of aren't privy to. And most people wouldn't have much of an idea about, and it kind of gets gives public a, a chance to step back in time and see things that were done and how they were done the old way. What were you? What do you have for the Abbey Medieval Festival made? And what were you working on this week for the Medieval Festival? My so my medieval kit, my reenactment is based around fourteenth century. England and Scandinavia. 
so as a bow maker I put on bow making displays arrow making displays I also run the English Warbows Queensland display so we get the big bows out and we shoot some different types of armour and give people an idea about medieval tactics and how the bows were used in that period what's your definition of a big bow and like what is that in kilos the English Warbow Society that was started in England set a minimum standard of a Warbow of 75 pounds at 32 inch draw length so roughly 35 40 kilos kilos. yeah (coughs) and the bows that I shoot are anywhere from 120 pounds up to 160 pounds, uh, 30 inches draw. So very, very heavy bows. 160 pounds, it's like trying to pull 80 kilos with one arm. Basically picking up a small person with three fingers. 80 kilos is a small person. That's right. Our kids are like 30 kilos. I think it's a bit more than that. <laughs> I think it's an adult with one arm. Um, what else were you preparing for the medieval festival this week? So I've been working on some some pieces to have in the camp. Um, Basically things to either display items from through history or uh, stands and racks that we're going to be used to actually display the the items. So I have arrow racks and a bow stand that I've been working on, um, all using hand tools and uh, old joinery techniques, trying to keep things... as handmade and period correct as possible for the display. It was a very exciting week. I was at work and you sent me these arrow stands. And you're like, there's no more loose arrows through the house. I, I, I don't think I've been so excited for such a long time. That's right. I Maybe was... since you made the bow rack. <laughs> <laughs> I have space for 80 arrows now, so I shouldn't have any any issues storing everything, I think. Everything's put away. Mm, it will be. Perfect. And now that we aren't doing the Abbey Medieval Festival, the Abbey Medieval Festival, it's it's a great day. It's a great weekend for mm. us as a family. Very much. But it is it is a weekend where you do end up getting about six months' worth of work out of it, which is we rely on it pretty heavily. <coughs> Hold on. Our neighbour with the Commodore is back. Sorry about that, guys. That's our neighbour. Um, those of you that don't know, Outlaw Bows is a obviously a small business that Colin runs from home. He has had a workshop in the past, but we recently bought this house where he now has a big shed and workshop out the back, but it does mean that we are currently running this podcast from a small homemade studio at home, so we apologize for the interruptions, and hopefully we can refine these sorts of things down the track and for further episodes. But anyway, during that quick break... <coughs> Uh, Colin was out the back having a few shots, obviously. I don't know a day in this household where Colin doesn't get a few shots in. Um, And he just showed me the bow that he was making. And just, sorry, to shift gears from the Abbey Medieval Festival. What what were you making? Who's it for? Tell me about the bow. (coughs) So the one that I'm making on, um, I'm currently working on, is a custom order. It's a Howard Hill style um, American longbow. Uh, It's... Target weight was 50 pounds. I glued it up on, you guys have all seen on the Facebook page, on Outlaw Bows Facebook page. I posted some photos of it glued up. Just search Outlaw Bows on Facebook and it should come up. That's right, yeah. So there's some photos of it up there on the page in glue up in the form and I've taken it out of the form and then this morning shaped it, tilted it and I'm just in the process of shooting it in to make sure it's not going to have any 
um, any issues. I've just taken the tape off it <coughs> today. We tape over the the fiberglass when we glue up the fiberglass bows just to stop it getting glue on them and uh, any, any little imperfections. And I've just stripped the tape off to have a look at what the glass looks like and it's come up really nice. I'm quite happy with how that bow is coming out. I'm looking forward to getting it completely finished sanded and uh, finished coats on and then get it off to the customer. He should really enjoy that one. Perfect. Um, yeah, we were talking about the Abbey Medieval Festival and how it is, it's a great weekend for us, but it is also, we do rely on it because it is the, the advertising right. that you do. The Warbow display that you do for which organisation do you do the Warbow display for? That's right. So I do the Warbow display um, and that seems to get a good reception from the crowd. Who's that through? I run that through a group that I formed um, about seven, six, seven years ago. Um, I formed a group called English Warbows Queensland and it was basically when I had Mr. Jake Fenwick come over. Um, he's a Canadian chap, shoots Warbows, has been for a very long time. He's a very accomplished maker himself and he sort of specialises in English longbows and warbows as well and he came over and visited me and we sort of wanted to make something out of his visit so I started a group and we had a, a few guys that were also interested here in Queensland <clears throat> come and we had a shoot, the inaugural shoot and we set some uh, set some records up here in Queensland I've still got copies of the records that we shot um, we ran with uh, the arrows, same arrows that the English Warbow Society in England uses, so same specs. And um, yeah, we had a good shoot through that, and that's that's what I started. And I've got a, f a fair few guys up here very interested in doing it. Um, it's been hard with COVID, um, trying to get more shoots organised. Every sort of time we we aim to organise one, something happens, and we're not able to. And the Abbey was going to be a good, uh, a good little stepping stone into another proper shoot. Um, I've got some guys that had come up from you or were coming up from New South Wales to do the Abbey in their own reenactment groups that I had recruited to do the display with us, but unfortunately we couldn't make that happen. You were the first person to shoot a warbow at the Abbey Medieval Festival, which to me just sounds <coughs> crazy. Like it's what well, it would have That's been right. 20, yeah. 27 years this year, like. You did it at the 25th anniversary. I am 25. And it's like no one else had shot a warbow at the Abbey Medieval Festival because it just seems like such a massive part of just medieval history. That's right. When I started my reenactment career, uh, what have we, would have been seven, six, seven years ago, somewhere around there. Um, six years ago. It was a big thing that was missing at the festival. Um, you see the jousting, you see the horses and armour, you see all the knights and all the weapons and everything. Even the siege engines, that was all there, but you know the archery competition was there, but seeing these bows in what they really were and how they were really used was something that was... <clears throat> something that was missing from the festival that we pushed really hard to include and you know through some friends in my group that I'm in now, we managed to convince the, the organisers that it was a big part of it and you know, you know, we get a slot on Sunday around lunchtime usually where we get to get on the main field and put on a bit of a show for the people that want to come and watch. 
I think it's all very impressive to be like, this is the bow that we're shooting, etc., etc. And then to have you guys shoot a bow that makes a hole in armor is like, that's always what draws a crowd. It's just like, it seems insane to watch because we always <coughs> know how strong armor is. And it's like, that's meant to protect you. And it's like, we all see these movies and whatever else. That's and it. that's always, that draws a crowd. That's always very impressive, I think. We, we, we do get a good reception when we hit the problem, hit the breastplates and the helmets and stuff. The crowd's always, they always like seeing stuff get hit, but I think they enjoy watching arrows explode the most out of anything. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but That's know. the most costly venture, isn't it? <laughs> it is, but it keeps me in the job, so it's okay. Yeah, I know a guy. Um, yeah, that's right. No, well, yeah, we do, we do heavily rely on the Abbey Medieval Festival, so it, it is sad in terms of a family outing and we're looking forward to you know the camping out like we haven't been able to travel like mm. covid's been ruling our lives for over 18 months now it's and we were heavily like we've had to cancel these family trips and whatever else we were looking forward to that but now it's also mm-hmm. it does sacrifice that income but look it is what it is um now that you aren't focusing and pushing really really hard for the abbey medieval festival for this weekend what are you working on what are some of the orders that you have going at the moment <clears throat> so I've still got a fair few orders backlogged at the moment that I've had come in over the last few months. Um, I've got the Howard Hill that I'm working on currently that you guys all saw glue up, you know, the photos there and Ali spoke of um, just recently that I've, I've been shooting in. You know, I try and sort of get between, you know, 100 and 200 arrows out of a bow before it leaves here just so I know that it's quality control yeah that's my quality control it's got to you know be able to last that long with no issues um before i'm happy for it to leave so that's sort of my process but i've got another one of those for a guy uh, here in queensland and i've got a a short native american indian bow that i've got to get done as well for a chap down in victoria he's very keen on the native american uh, archery scene and and that sort of stuff so i've got that one um I've got a Viking two wood, Norwegian two wood war bow that I've got to get uh, <clears throat> get that one working on as well. I've got to, still got to find one piece of wood that I need for that to get it just right. Um, and then I've got uh, a few orders there of glass bows for for other guys around the place um, and some some prototypes. And then I've got one very special one that I'm working on for Ali as well to get her shooting. Uh, a bit more regularly I think if she has a nice pretty purple bow it might sort of spur her on to shoot a bit more regularly as well that and free time between work that's right um and you've been on a few hunting trips lately which unfortunately like you haven't been on any or many since you know we've started a young family and Ollie's seven and Archer's three and I work (coughs) terrible hours I did you know I've always I've got early mornings and late evenings and night shifts or whatever it is at the time yeah and you've finally gotten back into a few hunting trips I think you've been on one when Arch was a baby yeah I went on one when I was when he was very very little um that was a good a good six hour drive south of here um but I've managed to get onto a block that's much much closer and allows me to do a, a morning trip um, to try and chase some ferals. Is it frustrating? Because, like, you now have to build up this skill set again. Because you used to hunt and you, you've, you know, done whatever else before we met. You haven't been able to do that for a long time. 
and now you have to build that up. Is it? Are you finding it quite frustrating, or are you enjoying it, or any tips? Yeah, and tricks? I'm enjoying getting back into the you know being out bush and things to pick up on. It all comes back. I don't think it ever leaves. It, it's just little refreshes, and you remember things each trip. You know, small things, behaviours that you've seen in animals before, things to watch out for. Um, so it does come back quite quickly. But I'm I'm definitely enjoying getting trips, and I'm hoping that when we do more trips I can start to put meat on the ground and, and in the freezer so that that can offset some of our expenses that's the whole deal with me going hunting is to be utilising what I can out of the animals so they're not wasted I don't like seeing waste in and get me some more nice hides in hunting that's right and yeah get some pretty skins to have around the house give us some something to talk about in subsequent episodes <laughs> it is surprising though because when I met you I was like oh a hunter how dare he I used to think it was so terrible like if my mum bought a cow hide yeah, or something I was like do. or a leather couch I was like how dare my mum <coughs> buy that um and then I've met you and there's so much more to it like I remember your mum and I having a conversation one afternoon mm. and there was your mum is she's very quiet and chill or whatever but it almost felt like a lecture on the difference between trophy hunting versus like hunting for sustainability or like trying to you know support your yeah, family there is a big difference between the two you know the, there is a crowd that'll go out and you know they won't shoot something unless it's a trophy head or a trophy hide to them and leave the meat behind and you know that's one side of it and a lot of times often those guys you know they will use what they can out of things but might not you know they might see a skin as just a skin, whereas I can see that as resources and they, a lot of th- a lot of throwaway things in animals that most people wouldn't bother using. Is you know there is a use for it. It's just working out where. I definitely think it comes down to education, though. That's right. Yeah. It's like anything. Like if I don't know, you can say that something's <clears throat> bad for someone, or you, you know, don't do that, or whatever else, or why something's good for you. But you need to provide education. Like I honestly, I thought hunting was bad, and I've had I you know was open-minded about it and I've had an education uh-huh. and now I understand it and I support it I fully support it I, I'm at the stage now where I would much prefer that you fill our freezer from a hunting trip than from Woolworths yeah, because definitely. that's much more even more humane like that was one thing not one thing there's a lot of things I learned from watching we watched Meat Eater with Steve yeah, Ranella on Netflix which is amazing to watch like even, he's such a good show. I hope <coughs> even the kids love watching Meat Eater it's great that's true I hope we are allowed to mention that stuff on a podcast and we're not going to get taken down but um it was such a great show because it these blokes like they don't just go for any deer like they're looking for the older deer you know one that's like planted its seed and the next generation started they're not going for the mm. young buck or yeah that's right there was one that they shot where it had been into a fight with um, another deer and an antler had pierced its skin and its leg was going necrotic and that deer was going to have a very painful death if uh, like the hunters you know they shot him they took the meat they could use that's right but that was a much nicer death for that animal than it was for what yeah, nature had planned it, for him if nature like, had taken its course it might have been a lot longer and a lot slower it was far more, more painful, humane but... absolutely and then you hear the stories of what goes <coughs> on in abattoirs even in australia like I'm, I'm not ragging on abattoirs or anything but i think there's a lot of people even working in abattoirs they don't like some of the processes and sometimes mm. it doesn't always go the right way um I'm not saying to boycott or anything like that. I'm just saying that if I had my choice between you, I don't know, shooting a goat or a deer yeah. versus me popping down to Woolies and getting our meat, 
That's right. I would absolutely go for the more sustainable option. For sure. No, no that's been quite an. Uh, it's been very educational. Um, I, th- I think the hardest part about hunting, and particularly with bow hunting, is unless it's something that you've actually experienced firsthand, it's really hard to explain to people the little things that it takes to actually do what we do. And, mm. you know, a lot of people will say, oh, the arrows hurt the animals. A lot of the time, the animals, well, I'd say a lot of the time, 85%, 90% of the time, the animal doesn't even know what's happened when they get hit. That's another story I love, like not to just go and promote everyone straight off the bat. Um, like, I don't, you know, I think we should probably ask people before we discuss this stuff, so I hope no one has us taken down. But Jack Spinks. There was this one video that you showed me and it was like, it's not nice to watch, but it, like, it, like it, it was to a certain degree because he had shot this goat and this goat literally just stopped and like looked around and like didn't know what had happened to him and just like kept eating. Was it, this was the one where he kept eating yeah, grass? Yeah. And he, and then he just kept eating grass and then he just dropped down. And I'm like, that goat had no pain. That's right. He did it, not it know what hit him. He did not care. You know, and it's not like Jack Spinks is standing there jumping up and down and going, "Woohoo, look at me." He was quite quiet yeah, and reserved. Very humble, very he humble let and what, happened, about happened. what happened He didn't, you know, cause a massive adrenaline rush in this animal where they're going to then take longer to die, um, and it's going to, you know, make it more painful and traumatic for this animal. <coughs> it was actually one of those videos where I was like, "That is much nicer than anything you'll see in an abattoir or whatever else." That's um, right. And the animal's had a wild life too. It's, it's lived oh, its absolutely. life, it's experienced nature, it's got to do what it wanted to do. Not to mention there's so many pests. That was the other thing in part of your mum's lecture was mm. I didn't understand the impacts of pests. I was very much like, oh, Bambi, how dare you? But yeah. on the other, on the flip side, I'm very much about supporting farmers and farmers' livelihood and you know keeping everything Australian-made and supporting everything in Australia. Mm-hmm. It's like, how, how are you meant to support Australian farmers? but then not support hunting when you have all these pest animals affecting their crops and their livelihoods. And it's like, oh, okay, yes, it's whatever, it's Bambi, whatever. But it's also affecting so much more than that. And they are a pest and they do need to be culled just like pigs and just like so many other animals. It is... That's right. It's about managing the resource. And I think Australia needs to take a bit of a look at what goes on in the States and how they manage their animal populations so that we can do something very similar over here and rather just have government want to eradicate them as a pest rather than that see them as a resource that can be used both for, you know, income through, you know, tag a tag system or permits or something like that and then also hunters spending money in the economy through, you know, shops, archery shops, rifle shops, bullets, whatever. Plus in Australia, like, they pay people to kill... <coughs> go out pick hunting and whatever else if you want to go all right there's x amount of tags out there go and get them go on you know that's and right. run it like they did in the states the government wouldn't would make money it wouldn't cost them money yeah that's a strange plus thing. then you're trying to manage populations rather than trying to just get rid of entire populations that's right you manage it you know the hunting community is going to utilize the resource rather than just let it go to waste this just seems crazy if you had spoken to me and said that i was going to be having this conversation and these ideas I don't know, five, six, seven years ago, I would have thought you were absolutely crazy. And now I 110% agree with it. Yeah, it's something that we've spoken about a lot. And, you know, hopefully one day you or you and the kids will both, you know, you'd be able to join me in a trip. And Ollie's desperate to go hunting. 
experience it firsthand and you know if it's something that you want to continue doing that's cool if it's not then you know it is what it is and it's an experience i feel like we've very we've segued heavily from the abby conversation (laughs) joys of podcast as he sips on his mead that's right (laughs) we're all very eager to go and sit at the abby medieval festival this weekend and drink mead and getting my little viking hit yeah, your Viking mead, which was made by Warwick's Hulse Hill, who he's also not. To, oh my god, I'm plugging like I'm plugging everyone. It's Just not keep even plugging meant, people. It's all good. It's not even meant to be an ad though. Just plug me some more. Yeah, plug, sure. This is what it's for. Um, yeah, Warwick is. He's an author as well. He's written <coughs> Pagan Child, and he's written a few other books. Yeah, he's working on some other books, but he is a very, very accomplished mead maker. Yes, um, absolutely. So I'm, I'm sitting sipping on one of his creations from last year when uh, the abbey wasn't wasn't run and uh, unfortunately we missed out on it again this year but he had a lot of time warwick to make in me. true warwick fashion will no doubt make a batch to commemorate the <laughs> the not happening of abbey this year and i'll enjoy some of it next year yeah at the abbey at the abbey for sure but yes 20, warwick, abbey 2022 warwick Hulse hill pagan child that's right no so you're just sitting here drinking mead which is quite funny considering we're talking about the abbey um, is there anything else you wanted to say about the Abbey? No, I think we've touched on it pretty well. And, you know, it's definitely something that people should... You have to see it. Try. You cannot should, explain it you know, to people. It's, it's one of those things that people should very much try and, you know, make the effort to just take a day, take the kids, enjoy what it is. Enjoy, you know, it is what it is. And, um, you know, there's something there for everybody. It doesn't matter, you know, how what your age is, what your interests are. There's something there that you can be fascinated by and or completely unaware of until you go there and see it firsthand. So it's definitely worth the trip. And well, I, I would tell anyone that asked me about it to definitely spend at least one day there and, and make the effort to to go and enjoy it. One of my favourite <laughs> stories, and I, like I've told it a million times, and I'll probably tell it a million more, was when we had first started dating and you were like, do you want to come get dressed up at a medieval festival with me? I was like, oh my God, what have I gotten myself into? And we went and it was awesome. I was sort of, I went there because you liked it and I wanted to support you and I wanted to make you Mm. happy. Yeah. But oh my gosh, it is an amazing day out. Like the kids have so much fun. Like, both the boys, we tried to explain it to them that we're going this year and they don't really seem to remember it that well because it's been COVID and whatever else. It's been a while. But when they are there, they have so much fun. It is an amazing mm-hmm. day out. It is very educational but very fun. Definitely. Ollie was like three and he rode a camel. <coughs> like, I couldn't mm. wait for Archer to ride a camel this year. And yeah. it's, it's an amazing spot. The food's amazing. Everyone's willing to teach you. Everyone's really nice. So it's a really good spot. Definitely. So it's definitely a shame that we're not going this year and, you know, you've got a lot of stuff to work on, whether it's Abbey stuff or customer orders, mm-hmm. but I was really hoping to sit, in, sit here and do a podcast about what we're doing to prepare for it and then another one to talk about how it went, but we'll try again next year. Mm, definitely. Hopefully, w- hopefully we'll get there next year. I want to say thank you if you have listened this far. We are so, so grateful. Um, this is our first podcast, so hopefully as time goes on, it will become a bit more refined and we'll get the hang of things a little bit more. And please excuse us. We are both, we're not feeling the greatest, hence having COVID tests this morning while we are in a COVID lockdown. So hopefully we'll sort of be a bit better for the next podcast. 
thank you so much and we'll chat to you guys soon bye thanks for listening guys much appreciated bye